It's a pleasure to be with you today as we continue in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we'll be tackling perhaps a little less controversial of a subject. Instead of politics, we'll just be talking about how we all die. So congratulations. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> well, we do find ourselves back in the book of Ecclesiastes specifically. We'll be looking at what Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 10 all the way through 9 verse 10. We will be jumping around a little bit today. But as we start, just to get a good idea of what Solomon is speaking of here, I would like us to begin by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. And so I know you all just sat down, but if you could stand with me one more time as we begin reading Ecclesiastes chapter 9, picking it up in verse 2. There Solomon says this, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which she has given you under the sun." For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's no activity or planning or knowing or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we come to Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, once again, we find ourselves in a text in which Solomon speaks of, of two extremes. And as such, we find Solomon using language that should not be all that surprising to us, for we live in a society that is full of extremes. That is to say, we live in a culture that is increasingly polarized. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. I listen to anyone speak of the current events, and, and generally they'll fall into the camp of a person who says, this is the worst thing that's ever happened, or did you see this? This is the greatest thing that has happened. Spend any time on social media, and you will see all those clickbait headlines that assure you that clicking on this headline will, will show you the greatest picture you've ever seen. You watch a news broadcast, and again, they try to reel you in to watch the next segment because they're about to reveal the most despicable thing that has ever happened. In every walk of life, it seems, people like to speak in these extremes, and for a number of reasons. For one, it gets our attention, but also in our own daily lives, I think we do this because it's easy. 
It's easy to describe everything as terrible or everything as good. It's easier. It, It seems to make life more simple. But as we do this, we fail to appreciate what Solomon lays out as wisdom yet again today. We fail to appreciate that there really is a balance to all of this. What I hope we understand as we look at Solomon's words again today is that the calling of the believer is neither to be a constant Debbie Downer, speaking of how horrible the world is, nor is it a calling to be a Pollyanna who is insistent on speaking of how great everything always is. Both extremes are unbiblical. Both extremes miss the mark of wisdom. Now, if we're to find the balancing act that Solomon ultimately is prescribing here, we must do so both by acknowledging that which is bitter, that which is terrible, as well as acknowledging that which is sweet, that which is delightful. But in the middle of all that, we must also seek to understand the balance and what the lifestyle of the balanced one looks like. With that being said, we will spend our time yet again looking over the bitter as well as the sweet, but my hope is that we might walk away ultimately encouraged, understanding that our calling isn't all that complicated. With that being said, before we delve into that which is bitter and that which is sweet, let's begin by opening up our time in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, again we come before you humbled as we come to yet another difficult text in Ecclesiastes. And indeed, it seems there is no easy text in Ecclesiastes. But God, as we come to this text, we pray that you might use it to humble us, as it is a reminder of the fact that things are not necessarily any worse than they've ever been before, that the bitter truths we still face today are the same bitter truths that your people have faced for all time since the fall of man. And so as we consider the words of Solomon, God, might we learn to not be overwhelmed by either that which is delightful nor that which is bitter. But might we learn to see past it? Might we learn to see you in all of it? And in so doing, might we find that precious balance in which there is life, in which there is hope, in which there is a foretaste of that which is yet to come. God, as always, we pray that you remove all distractions from our minds this morning. God, might we be focused entirely upon you, entirely upon your word. And God, I pray that this morning might be spent in a manner that is glorifying to your precious Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. As we begin, unfortunately, we must begin with that which is bitter. And this should be no surprise to any of us who have spent any time in Ecclesiastes, for Solomon speaks a whole lot about that which falls into this whole bitter camp. We do not have time this morning to read all of 8, 10 through 9, 10, but, but if you do read through these verses, you find two basic complaints of Solomon. Two complaints of bitterness that that have been spoken of time and time again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. For much of what Solomon says is quite repetitive. These are the same complaints he makes. In our text today, the two complaints that he focuses upon are first the complaint of confusion, that is the bitterness that the confusion this life brings. And the second is the bitterness of death or the darkness of death. Speaking to that first complaint, that is the confusion of life, consider the words of Solomon earlier in our text, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. Here we find a complaint that we've seen elsewhere. For he says there, Where I gave, or when I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though no one should sleep day or night, 
and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Throughout this text, we see this this basic complaint being made time and time again, and it is by no means anything new. Just a few weeks ago, we would have found ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. In Ecclesiastes 6, at the very end, Solomon made the same complaint. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For, and here's the complaint, Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Time and time again, Solomon makes this basic complaint. And the complaint is basically this. As Solomon looks about, about over the world, he sees two basic categories of people. Categories that still apply to us today. He, he sees those who are wicked and those who are righteous. In our text today, he speaks similarly of those who work laboriously and those who are lazy. You can think of these people as foolish, as wise, as wicked, as righteous. But regardless of how you describe them, the same basic point is made time and time again. Everyone falls into one of these two categories. And as Solomon describes humanity in this way, he's not being dismissive of humanity, nor of humanity's achievements. For he speaks openly of the fact here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 that there is that individual who, who works laboriously to find truth. There were people in Solomon's day, and there continue to be people in our day, who genuinely are trying their best, who are incredibly hardworking, incredibly talented, and they are striving to, to bring light to this dark world. As a result, we have been blessed with, with numerous uh, accomplishments that mankind has made in, in just about any field you can mention whether that be in, in fields of philosophy, as those discussed so frequently by Solomon, but also in fields of, of medicine and education. We see humanity, both those who are wicked as well as those who are righteous, working and striving to accomplish that which will better society. And oftentimes it appears that they are successful in their pursuits. And yet, Regardless of how successful they might be, regardless of of how many strides they may take forward in their field, ultimately Solomon says that the same result is there. They they still can't answer some of life's most basic questions, can they? You see the Apostle Paul making a similar point of of all those wise philosophers that lived in that ancient Greco civilization. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes this critique of those brilliant so-called philosophers. We've cited this before, but it is relevant yet again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You can understand how offensive that statement would have been in Paul's day, for he is referring to that, that class of great intellectuals. Those individuals that would have been viewed as, as brilliant, as the real movers and shakers, and quite frankly, philosophers that, that you can still learn about and study about in, in any philosophy course today. 
As Paul makes reference to in his psalm and is ultimately speaking of, these people can do in many ways great things, but, but ultimately, apart from God, as we'll see, they're still left in the dark in the end. And they still can't find that, that basic ultimate solution to the problems we face in life. Solomon speaks of that confusion. He speaks of that haze. And he says again, regardless of how you live your life, this is your plight. You will always be in the dark. You will always be confused. It doesn't matter what you do. As depressing as that is, it, of course, does not hold a candle to the second complaint of Solomon, does it? And this really is the ultimate problem that Solomon speaks of regularly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. That second problem, that second bitter pill, is death. And it is that bitter pill that Solomon speaks of a great deal once again here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and 9. We read of that bitter pill already in our opening in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 2, where Solomon says, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous, one for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swear is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. The same fate that befalls us all is what? It's the grave. It's death. And for Solomon, this is the greatest frustration. Because as, as hazy as this world is, as confusing as this life may be, it at least offers a, a glimmer of hope. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can fool yourself into thinking, okay, I think I, think I can figure this out. If I just get one more day on earth, if, if I can just solve this one riddle, this one problem, then, then I'll figure it out. But as Solomon speaks of here, and as he says so frequently, ultimately, that way of thinking and that, that time will run out. You, I, all of us, will ultimately die. It is inevitable. And as Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it is at that point in death in which darkness sets in, in which there's no more philosophical debate, no more attempts to make great strides in your field. There's nothing but the grave, and in terms of living life under the sun, there is nothing more bitter. There's nothing darker And making this complaint, Solomon is, is, of course, by no means saying anything new. He's simply saying that from the outside looking in, it all appears to be utterly pointless. And in speaking in this way, he is in many ways talking just like his dad would have taught him. For when you read through the Psalms, you see David making very similar complaints as he observes life. One of the clearest examples of this, and perhaps one of the most helpful Psalms to think of as we consider Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, is found back in Psalm 73. And in the first half of Psalm 73, David makes similarly hopeless statements regarding what he sees when he looks around the world. As he makes those observations, hear these words of David, that's, or the, these words of Asaph that sound very similar to what David tells us elsewhere and what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Here the psalmist in Psalm 73 verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parade through the earth. Therefore, as people return to their place and waters of abundance are drunk by them, and they say, how does God know? And there is knowledge with most, and is there knowledge with most high? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. The words of the psalmist there in Psalm 73 are are not all that dissimilar to the words of Solomon, are they? For he looks out around him and he sees both righteous and wicked, but in the psalmist's eyes there's, there's no benefit to living righteously. No, the wicked do whatever they want, and it seems that there's no consequence, no punishment. Like Solomon, the psalmist in Psalm 73, looks across humanity and in essence sees that we are all just rats in an endless maze, a maze we cannot escape. And in that maze, we not only live our, our entire lives, but we ultimately will die never finding the end, never seeing any good, never seeing any hope. That's the reality that we all face. That is the bitter worldview that Solomon puts forward. And of course, this is by no means a pleasant thing to focus upon as we enter into church on a Sunday morning, is it? And we'd like to get past this to the brighter spots in Ecclesiastes, but it is worthwhile sitting in this bitterness, at least for a moment. For Solomon is is not that far off in his observations. He recognizes that life can, in fact, be incredibly bitter. And in a a room this size, I trust that there are many of you sitting in here this morning who, who have this outlook on life at the moment. Perhaps you are mourning the loss of a loved one. Perhaps you lost your job. Perhaps your marriage is a disaster at the moment. And although you plaster a smile on your face when you walk into church, you feel embittered towards everyone, and to God even. Because you understand the the bitter taste of which Solomon describes here. You understand that at least at this moment, the world does in fact feel hopelessly and helplessly dark. And if this were all Solomon were to say about life in this moment, it would seem that the end conclusion is one simply of of hopelessness. If life really is this awful, then let's just end it all. Let's just get on with it and, and just rush to the grave, for that seems to be our only hope. And indeed, many people might read the book of Ecclesiastes and assume quite simplistically that that is the conclusion of Solomon, that life is awful. That there is no light, there is no hope, there's only that which is bitter. But even within Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, we see that 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 focus on the bitterness is, is far too simplistic. Focusing on that which is dark is far too simplistic of an understanding. Solomon himself understands that this world possesses more than that which is just bitter. 
And so leaving the hopelessness aside that the bitterness brings, Solomon sprinkles in these shocking moments of sweetness as well. And it is through that sweet that we look to next. Solomon describes sweet experiences a a couple of times in these chapters. But it is by no means, again, anything new to Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, for he has described the reality of joy throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It has been quite a while, but if you recall the language of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, that famous passage made popular by the bird song, There is a Season, Turn, Turn, Turn. In that passage, Solomon describes the various seasons there are, and while there are seasons to tear down, there are also seasons to build up. While there are seasons he describes as weeping, there are seasons of laughter as well. Solomon has experienced that sweetness. Solomon knows that there are seasons of joy. And so yet again, as we come to Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, it should not surprise us to see that that he speaks honestly to these sweet experiences. Perhaps most powerfully, you have the depiction of of a variety of of sweet experiences found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Read along with me and you will see a number of these pleasures of which Solomon encourages Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 9, he says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Now some read these words as if they are the words of a cynic who says simply, well, there is no hope in life, so just go ahead and waste it all. But, but it ignores the detail of which Solomon speaks of these joys. It ignores the fact that he speaks of these joys in a number of ways throughout Scripture and throughout both Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes. And even in the midst of the bitterness, then it's important to see that, that Solomon acknowledges that there are real pleasures in this life. And he describes pleasures that, that I trust are familiar to all of us. I hope all of us have experienced these things. There in verse 7, Solomon speaks of of the pleasure of a great meal. Encouraging that sweetness, he says, enjoy your bread, enjoy your wine. He's speaking of a feast. And in so doing, he's speaking of something that, that I trust all of us can appreciate. Something we see throughout all of Scripture. For in commanding this feasting, Solomon is by no means speaking of something that is unbiblical or shady. He is speaking of something that God himself commands his people to do on a regular basis. We tend to not think of the religious rituals of Israel in this way, but, but when you read the depictions of those religious holidays for Israel, many of them revolved around feasting. You think of the Passover, you think of the Feast of First Fruits, you think of a variety of other times in which Israel basically got together and, and they celebrated And they ate a lot of food together in in recognition of God's grace. Our American culture today certainly isn't too foreign to that idea of eating a lot. We can appreciate a good meal, can't we? Just about every single holiday still today revolves around eating a lot of food. And while maybe some of you view view food purely as as fuel to help us work more, I hope most of us understand the, the gift that food is. Because there's pleasure in good food. There is such pleasure in a great meal. We should find joy in understanding that which is fine, understanding that which is better than than your common loaf of bread. There's joy in that pleasure. There is sweetness 
and a great meal. I love eating out at a nice restaurant. I also love McDonald's. But I understand the difference between eating at McDonald's and at a fine steakhouse. I pray to God you all do realize the same. It's different. And there's a joy in that. And Solomon understands that and he encourages that activity. And, and even beyond that, that joy, he speaks of another sweet pleasure. And it's, it's the pleasure of celebration. Again, read back at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Verse 8, he says, let your clothes be white all of the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, when you and I go out for a party, we probably aren't putting on our finest white linens, nor are you probably pouring perfume over your head. I don't know what you college kids do these days. Maybe that's a thing. <laughs> right? But we understand this is what Solomon is depicting. He's describing a party. He is saying, put on your finest, go out and have a great time. He's describing the activities that people in the ancient Near East would have done when, when going out for one of those great religious celebrations, when going out and enjoying themselves with their friends. Again, we live in a culture that is not all that distant from that. We, we still live in a culture that can appreciate this. You no doubt have, have experienced what I've experienced when you're out on some random Friday night in the spring and, and you suddenly see a group of high schoolers and they're all dolled up. They're wearing their tuxedos and they're wearing their fancy dresses. And, and even though you don't know those high schoolers, you have no idea who they are or where their families are, you understand that, that something special is happening. You probably understand, well, it's prom. And though you have no connection to those teenagers, there should be a part of you that, that smiles upon that. And you say, good for them. What a fun night. Right? And obviously there are things attached to the prom culture we don't agree with, but we understand there is a a joy that is associated with those celebrations. There is something special about setting a night aside and, and putting on our finest and going out with those whom we love. There's a sweet pleasure in that. And to that end, we see that final pleasure of which Solomon is ultimately speaking of. In verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. He speaks also of the sweetness of that companionship. Solomon here speaks most directly, I believe, to marriage, where he speaks of spending it with a woman that you love for all your life. This is not the first time Solomon has spoken of the beauty and the sweetness of marriage. He speaks it of earlier in Ecclesiastes. He also speaks of the sweetness of friendship, of companionship. He says it early on in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, where he says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, he says, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one, how can one be warm alone? Psalm understands there's great pleasure to companionship. There's a sweetness to marriage. There's a sweetness to friendship. It's a sweetness that Solomon acknowledges in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. The psalmist speaks a great deal of the sweetness of friendship. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks of the beauty of that, that marital relationship. And time and time again throughout all of Scripture, we see there's something precious about companionship. There's something sweet. Something sweet that we can taste even in the midst of the most bitter of moments. And so in light of the reality of these things, I think it is safe to say that that Solomon is not speaking cynically or sarcastically or ironically in Ecclesiastes 9. 
I think he genuinely is encouraging us to do these things. I think he's saying there is sweetness in this. There is goodness in these things. And yet, as as we read these words, if we were to separate these from everything else, again, it would be easy to come to a far overly simplistic conclusion, wouldn't it? For one might assume that Solomon is simply saying, okay, well, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Solomon here is, is commanding gluttony. Eat a whole lot. Drink a whole lot. Don't worry about work. Just focus on that which is fun. But is that what Solomon is encouraging here? Is there anything in this text that leads us to the conclusion that Solomon is telling us just celebrate nonstop? Well, no, again, that's far too simplistic. That ignores the entirety of what Solomon is saying. What we must understand is that Solomon is neither condoning focusing entirely on the bitter, nor is he condoning focusing, focusing entirely on that which is sweet. In both cases, we are ultimately doing the same thing. We're focusing entirely upon that which is temporary. We're placing all of our eggs in the basket of this fleeting life. Some do it with a smile, some do it with a frown, but they all do it with the same foolish heart. They all fail to understand that there is something deeper going on. This is something that the psalmist back in Psalm 73 certainly understood. And something that Solomon ultimately understands. The question is, what brings balance to all of this? How can we possibly look past all of these extremes? Well, to help put our minds in the right places, I think it's important to consider the words of that psalmist back in Psalm 73. For the psalmist in Psalm 73, having observed all that which is bitter and having come to the initial bitter conclusion that it seems Solomon himself comes to, comes to a moment of vitally important transition. And we see that transition in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 15. There the psalmist says, If I had said I will speak thus, meaning if I had complained, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. The turning point for the psalmist came not when he dwelled upon that which is temporal, but when he he looked upon God, when he entered into God's temple. And ultimately, while it is not quite as black and white, we see the same mindset in Solomon, I believe. We see that he's able to make the same turn as he comes back time and time again to that constant truth that brings balance. We see that balance initially, I think, in verse 1. Speaking to that which brings our balance, Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it to the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be loved or hatred. Anything awaits him. The key, Solomon says, is not in focusing all that you can accomplish on this earth. It's not focusing on the bitter. It's not focusing on the sweet. It's focusing on the one that controls all of it. It's understanding that God, God stands supreme over everything. He is the key to avoiding being overwhelmed by these things. 
And Solomon, I think, reveals a surprising number of characteristics of this God, even in the midst of of these dark texts. The first, and maybe the most important point Solomon makes about God, specifically here in chapter 9, verse 1, is, again, the fact that God is sovereign. Again, God holds all of these things in his hands. This is clearly a truth that Solomon understood, for you see him speak very clearly of it in other writings, specifically in the book of Proverbs. One of the most famous verses that is quoted in reference to the sovereignty of God comes from the writing of Solomon. For hear these words depicting God's sovereignty in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, we find this statement. 16 verse 9. There Solomon says, the, man, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Solomon says similar things throughout the book of Proverbs, that idea that the mankind can do whatever he wants to do, he can plan whatever he wants to plan, but ultimately it is up to God. That's it. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a peasant, if you're doing that which is righteous, that which is wicked, all of it falls under the sovereign plan of God. His hand directs, ultimately, all of humanity and all of our history. He is is sovereign over all nations, and he is sovereign over our individual souls. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, then the question isn't whether or not God exists or whether or not he's sovereign. The question is whether or not he holds love or hatred for you. That's the question. And this then brings in a second element of who this God is, as we see throughout Ecclesiastes. That second element is the fact that God is not only sovereign, but God is also judge. Throughout these verses, Solomon speaks very clearly of the fact that that how we live is important, not because of the the impact or the legacy we we live here, but because it will be judged by God. You hear this in the language of Solomon earlier. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 13, a verse we'll read again later, where Solomon says, It won't be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. In Solomon's mind, there's a direct correlation between how one lives and how one comes to their end, and, and while he cannot fully explain it, he understands it's in the hand of God. The book of Hebrews speaks to the same reality in Hebrews 9.27 where it speaks to the fact that it is appointed for every man to die and then comes judgment. We live in a world in which people frequently imagine that day of judgment as a sort of set of scales. This is popular imagery in the religion of Islam, for instance. And many people, when when thinking of whether or not they're going to make it into heaven, imagine that that God's going to weigh out your good deeds versus your bad deeds, and it's all a matter of whether or not your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. If they do, you're in heaven, but if it turns out you didn't do enough, you're judged. Of course, everyone assumes they're they're going to make it, right? And, and, And that seems adequate, that seems like a fair way to imagine judgment, but but judgment in scripture is never so impersonal. No, God doesn't have a scale before him. God is the scale. God is the judge. And he will judge each and every one of us. If we fear him, he he loves us. He will save us, as we'll say here in a moment. But if we live wicked lives, if we live a life that is entirely invested in this world and nothing else, then we will be judged by this God. This is 
a sobering thought. And, and honestly, in light of everything that Solomon has said about humanity, it would make sense if this was all he said about God. And in fact, sadly, many people view God entirely in that light. He is this terrifying figure in the sky who is ready to judge us all. He's a monster, quite frankly, is what many people think. But again, that fails to appreciate the beauty of God in this text. For while God is sovereign over that judgment, Solomon reminds us of one final and equally important point, that point being that same God is also the one who gives us gifts. That same God who will judge us is the one who who allows us to still find enjoyment in this life. Again, remember the words of Solomon in chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, what we read earlier. Picking up in verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. That companionship comes from God. That fine meal comes from God. That, that party comes from God. The celebration comes from God. All these good things that bring us these perhaps fleeting moments of sweetness, all of them are gifts from a righteous, holy, sovereign, giving, good God. James speaks of that same incredible truth regarding the nature of God. In James 1, where he says this, verses 17 and 18, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that, he would be, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Every good thing, James says, every precious gift, every sweet taste that comes across your tongue is a gift from the hand of a loving God. You see the beauty of that again in terms of meals, in terms of celebrations, in terms of companionship. But of course, we who are believers understand that the goodness that God has given us the greatest gift of all is exponentially better than those things, isn't it? For despite our wickedness, despite our folly, God has gone so far as to give us himself. For he's given us his son. Paul speaks of this reality in Romans chapter 8. This God does not withhold any good thing from us. He loves us enough to send his son for our own salvation, for our own eternal life. This God is sovereign, he is judge, and he is our gracious and good gift giver. And it is incredible that even in the midst of the darkest of moments for Solomon's writing, for we have seen some dark and bitter moments in Ecclesiastes, haven't we? Even in the midst of that that darkness, there are these glimmers of light that Solomon includes these brief glimpses that remind us that even if we cannot see it, even if we cannot taste it in the moment, we know it's true. We know God's behind it. And we know just as we've just seen that that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is judge, that he stands above it all. And it is only when we understand that balance that he brings, that ultimate meaning that he brings, that we can then understand appropriately the balanced life that Solomon is is ultimately commanding in this. Again, speaking to that balanced life, Solomon says a number of, of helpful points to us this morning. 
The first and perhaps most foundational is that which we read already in verse 13 of chapter 8. Solomon says, It will not be well for the, for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. The balanced life for every individual begins here. It begins with fear. A fear of God. Again, Solomon says this very clearly in other writings, most famously in Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, verse 7, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the starting point of balance. This is the starting point of wisdom. It begins by you acknowledging you are confused by nature. You are helpless by nature. And you are headed to a grave you cannot avoid. And so you would be utterly foolish to put all your eggs in in your own basket and to think, okay, maybe I can get this figured out. Maybe I can do that which no other person throughout the history of humanity has been able to do. Maybe I'm good enough, maybe I'm smart enough, maybe I'm good-looking enough. No, that would be foolish. No, we are only wise when we understand that hopelessness and helplessness of ourselves and choose then to fear God, which simply means to understand that God is God and you are not. There's an understanding that you are in desperate need of Him, that He alone can save you, that He alone is the judge. And so we fear God. We serve God. We obey what God has said. And to go in line with the rest of the text this morning, we also understand that part of fearing God is enjoying God's good gifts. If we are truly focused on our great God who gives us gifts, then we should not be ashamed of enjoying the gifts that he gives us. There's nothing wicked about enjoying company with friends. There's nothing wicked with going on a vacation and enjoying, life, uh, enjoying time with your spouse or with a good friend. There's nothing wrong with that. That is good. That is precious. There's nothing wicked about enjoying a really nice meal on occasion. Nothing wrong with these things. Enjoy that sweetness. See it as as a gift from God, and as we'll see here in a few minutes, see it as a foretaste for the greater sweetness that lies ahead. Fear God, believer, but also enjoy the gifts he gives us. And as we do all these things, then we ultimately come to that, that basic broad summary of all of it in verse 10 where Solomon finally says whatever your hand finds to do do it with all your might for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going now of course that last phrase about there being nothing in the grave goes beyond our ultimate hopeful point this morning but for the most part what Solomon says here is is quite simply that which biblical authors say all the time right It's the command to live the life that God has given you. Do it with all of your might. Do everything you can do with passion, with vigor, with appreciation, knowing that life is fleeting. And in so many ways, there is so much encouragement in this. This is such a freeing message, I feel, in Scripture. For God does not call us to to all abandon everything we have and and move overseas. He does not call us to go live in some monastery and, and hope that God gives us some special revelation. God calls us to live out the life that, that he's given us. He calls us to be a good friend. And so be a good friend to your friends. If you're married, be a good spouse to your spouse. Regardless of where you are working, assuming you're not employed by some drug cartel, I assure you, you can accomplish the will of God and satisfy him in your workplace, wherever you are. 
You, Christian, who are finding yourself in the average nine-to-five job in the corporate workplace are glorifying God just as much as any missionary overseas us, if you are doing it for his glory. You're just as important in the kingdom. That is glorifying to God. That is kingdom work. And so do it with all of your might. Be a good employee. Be a good spouse. Be a good friend. Be a good citizen. But do it all again with the proper motivation that is said elsewhere in Scripture. That motivation that Paul speaks of so clearly in Colossians 3.17 or in 1 Corinthians 10. It's the motivation that, that tells you you do it all for the glory of God. And in doing these things, of course, we find ourselves in the midst of a life that is far from extreme. Right? We find ourselves oftentimes in moments that aren't necessarily extremely sweet, nor are they exceptionally bitter. They are quite simply straightforward, somewhat balanced at least. And there's a beauty in this. There's something unique about this, the life of a believer that the unbeliever cannot have. Because it can only be enjoyed when one understands the ultimate sovereign ruler who brings balance to it all. And so as we consider all these things, unbelievers, for those of you who have not placed your faith in Jesus, my encouragement to you is, is please don't be overwhelmed by all of the world presents to you. For you live in a world that is manic in its approach to finding happiness. And you will be told time and time again that this will bring you happiness or that will bring you happiness or do this and suddenly everything will make sense and, and it's easy to be pulled one direction or another. But don't be fooled. It's all done in haziness. It's all done in confusion. Your only hope is to find hope in that who provides everything. It's to find hope in the one who is judge over everything. And so in believer, my prayer for you this morning is that you might place your faith in the one who sees past all of it, the one who stands sovereign over all of it. Namely, place your faith in Jesus Christ so as to avoid his wrath in the coming judgment. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not forget the turning point that the psalmist spoke of earlier in Psalm 73. For we live in a world that can be overwhelming. We live in a world in which it is hard not to be overwhelmed by the bitterness. And yet we remember the action of the psalmist in Psalm 73. When in the midst of all that bitterness and all that hopelessness, what changed his course? He entered into the sanctuary of God. And he stopped looking at the things of this earth and he thought to the end. He thought of he who controls it all. And so, dear believer, do not forget the importance of entering into the sanctuary of God, quite literally coming to church and singing songs of praise to God, reminding yourself of who you serve. As we do that, let us be quick to really examine ourselves. For many of us, I think, are prone to fall into these extremes. We're prone to present ourselves as those Debbie Downers or Pollyannas, assuming one or the other is more godly, but both miss the point. Let us properly live our lives in all seriousness, understanding that it's fleeting, understanding that people are going to hell. But let us also understand that life can be sweet. And so let us enjoy the gifts of God. As we do so, let us show grace to the manic world in which we live. It is so easy to be frustrated by, by that hot and cold, bitter and sweet mentality of the world around us, and we think, why can't they just understand they're wasting their time? But when we see it through the eyes of Solomon, we understand that well, they can't understand. They're desperately grasping for something to bring them lasting fulfillment, and apart from God, they're not going to find it. And so as opposed to just giving them another reason to be bitter, 
by constantly criticizing them, how about we show them a little grace? How about we demonstrate a precious, balanced life before them so that they can understand the sweet gift that God has given us? And as we do all these things, believers, let us remember quite seriously the calling of Solomon in verses 7 through 10. Let us take advantage of the moment, but let us do so all the while understanding that even in the most bitter of moments, we are preparing ourselves not just for for heaven, we're preparing ourselves quite literally for that celebration. Let us remember that that is where all this is headed. It is all headed to that which is infinitely sweeter than anything we can possibly imagine. Let that reality put put a smile on your face at times. Let that reality cause your heart to rejoice as we understand that we are the servants of a good and righteous God who is leading us to that eternal place of joy. As one of my favorite authors, Russell Moore, once said in his book, or one of his books, he says, we are warriors, yes, but we are joyful warriors. We are not slouching to Gomorrah, we are marching to Zion, and we do so not as a funeral procession, but we do so as those enjoying, headed towards the marriage feast in heaven. And so let us do that with joy, brothers and sisters. Let me close this in prayer, and Jeff will come and close us in a time of song. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. God, I confess in my own heart, it is easy to become overwhelmed by, by both the bitterness as well as the sweetness of this world at times. It is hard not to become overwhelmed by that which is temporary. But God, as Solomon reminds us today, Lord, might we never become so focused on that which is earthly. God, might we be able to see past even the bitter moments And understand that ultimately you have joy set before us, God. Let us respond with grace to those around us as they struggle, knowing that this world can be a bitter and dark place. Might we take seriously that struggle and might we speak graciously to those who struggle, Lord. But might we also not look past the moments of sweetness that you've given us, God. Might we enjoy those good gifts, God, and might we do it all looking forward to the day in which we might be joined with you in heaven, God. We love you, God, and we praise you. Be with us as we close now in Jesus' name. Amen.